In this interview, I'm once again joined by Lauren Roche, PhD, meditation teacher and author of the Radiance Sutras. We begin by discussing Lauren's career as a writer and discover why one of his early works triggered a visit from the CIA. We go on to discuss accidental mystical experiences, their positive and negative effects, and the role of practice in integration. We learn why so many meditators are stuck and don't know it, why meditation teachers are often the worst off of all, and what motivates people to teach. Lauren also shares his surprising top tips for a thriving personal practice, no matter the discipline. So without further ado, Lauren Roche. Lauren Roche, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Viking. We've covered lots of different topics in our previous interviews, and I'll link to those previous interviews in the show notes. But in this interview, I thought we'd focus on writing, your writing and the art of writing. And you've published several books uh, in brief. You did your PhD in 1987, Structures in the Language of Meditative Experience, Taxonomic and Multidimensional Representations. You've published in 1998, Meditation Made Easy, in 2001, Meditation Secrets for Women with Camille Maureen. 2004, Meditation 24-7, also with Camille. And in 2014, the work that I think you've become the most known for, at least recently, The Radiant Sutras, which is your rendering of the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. So I'm curious how you got started in writing and if maybe you could walk us through your life as a writer. The Spanish edition of Meditation Made Easy the German edition of Meditation Secrets for Women. Um, There's this whole body meditation published, the English published in England version, the whole body meditations, um, the new version of the Radiant Sutras. What's that? So that's the same, different edition. Portuguese, I think, yeah, Portuguese version of Meditation Made Easy. Yeah, the Radiant Sutras. Do you know how many languages you've been translated into? No, I should. I'm, I'm terrible at keeping track of, of uh, everything. How did your journey as a writer begin? I started meditating in a lab at the university because um, we had to participate in experiments. I was in the social science department and there was a rule like you had to participate in experiments every quarter. That was like, it was because they were desperate. The, the campus even in 1967, 68 was huge. It was built to be a full University of California. So like, I, I don't know how many students they have now, 32,000, 33, but at the time there was about 2000 2200 maybe and they they needed guinea pigs for their experiments so i sent to be in a meditation experiment where they just put me in a pitch black room wired up and just left me he said we'll be back in a couple hours mm. <laughs> don't move or you'll rip the wires off there was wires all over the place and brainwave and heart and um, what's called GSR, galvanic in response. And, and then I went to work in the lab and somehow everybody but me knew that I was a writer. I mean, I still, I don't think that I'm a writer. I just get up at four in the morning and write pretty much every day. But people were, asking me to write stuff and I go what like what me I'm like 18 why do I know and you go no you should write this article about electromyography the way that the muscles you can that scientists can wire you up and have you think of doing something like think of skiing and they can actually watch your muscles ripple with little tiny electrical impulses because imagination activates your body. You should write an article about that, the research going on, or you should write an article about brainwaves and meditation. This is on it. People are just warning you should write this. And I was like, what? Like, I'd go surfing and forget about it. And um, 
the the paradox was that in that time people were always asking me to write books for years and i was having very profound meditative experiences i would i would have deep silence for like 45 minutes in the morning and go surfing and then go to school go to the university and then teach meditation I, I never got any writing done but my mind was like very very spacious and quiet. I would just have no thoughts for long periods of time. And if if any of you have been a writer, you know that once you commit to a project, that's the end. That's the end of your peace of mind. Once you sign a contract that you're going to turn in a book, or once you or or have a gallery opening, or whatever your work is, or or your song is going to be performed live or go into a recording studio <laughs> once you commit to a creative project your mind is no longer silent it's it's a tornado of to-do lists so, so um at some point i said okay i'll start writing books and and then instead of sitting and just having like 40 minutes of deep deep the propose it would be like maybe have 10 minutes and then be feeling like a champagne uncorked just fizz. all right let's gotta jump up and write just jump up and stay there feeling the fizz of creativity for as long as i can in meditation then oh my god okay i have to write that's a perfect page it would just like appear i have to i have to write so um I started writing, I actually wrote more books than are up there. I wrote, um, I just took the money and ran. People started asking me to write, ghostwrite books for them. <laughs> really? Like what? <laughs> um, I wrote a novel in about a month about the CIA staging the return of Christ in order to manipulate religions in in afghanistan and i did have no idea that they they were actually active in afghanistan we just sort of looked at a map said oh that looks like a great place and um the cia actually came and visited my house with the book in hand because they loved the book and had been passing it around among people that were doing stuff in afghanistan because <laughs> And I wrote some books on meditation and what else did I write? Oh, I did some uh, writing on spiritual type material. But it, it's, um, it's an adventure. It's, um, and it, creativity is such an interesting thing because for whether you're a mom having babies and that's your creativity or a business person starting starting a business or you doing podcasts this is because this this video is a form of creativity it's a mini movie mm -hmm. or whether sculpture or painting or novels you have to be so many different people you have to be the one that creates the content, then you also have to be your own producer and even your own business manager. There's like many people that one has to be. And there's always obstacles. Obstacles always arise. And then you have to be the person who take that hit and then come back, find the energy to come back day after day. It probably harder, probably having babies is the most creative thing. And everything that we people who do is a different order. It's not as intense, but there's some, there's some equivalent to where a book or a project or a film is almost like your children. How did you learn to write? Often I've heard writers talk about the craft of writing um as, as separate from the sort of inspirational side how did you learn to write i'm not sure that i did um if i'd known if i'd known 
if I'd had a clue that, oh, I'm a writer, I would have studied the craft of writing. But I, I didn't. And um, if I'd known, for example, that the Radiant Sutra is what it want, what the text seemed to want to be, is more a kind of poetry to match how poetic the Sanskrit is. I would have studied, I said I would have studied poetry. The way I got to what the Radiant Sutras is, is by chanting the Sanskrit and listening to the reverberations of it for hours. I was standing, actually I'd be standing right here for the last eight years. I'll stand here, like starting at four in the morning, a, a certain verse, Shutam Deva Maya Sarvam Rudra Yamala Sam A certain verse would would be calling me and I would just walk around kind of dancing in the pre-dawn freshness. So yeah, what is that saying? What's the context? What does each individual word mean and what is the pattern? And how would you say something like that in English? So actually tracks, tracking backwards, um, two things happened in 1968, or three things. One is that the first course that I took at the university was taught by a sociologist named Alan Gross. And he had us read this book on healthy people by a psychologist named Abraham Maslow called, called the psychology of being, toward the psychology of being. And the idea that Maslow had was that psychologists should study healthy people and see how they do it. Like model healthy people. And he went about studying what he called self-actualized people. So from there I had the idea of interviewing healthy people that were thriving. And the subset that I got interested in is meditators who are thriving in their daily meditation practice. And then as research for the class and in the lab that was doing meditation research, I started interviewing people all around the university and students and people who live nearby that were meditating and sort of a glow with happiness from it. So I started doing these two hour interviews where um, I would just say, well, what do you experience during, during meditation? And I'd write down whatever they said. And it, like they would, we would do meditation interviews. So they close their eyes, maybe for five minutes or 20 minutes. And we'd both meditate. And they'd open their eyes and they say, like this, and I would just write page after page after page, whatever they said at the pace. And with, with meditators, when you approach an interview in that way, like they'll, they'll actually go into meditation for a couple minutes, bathe in their inner experience, go to their inner palace, their temple, their inner vacation spot, be in it and then speak from inside. They might just say a couple of sentences in 15 minutes. It's like two sentences. Like I remember this one woman, she was sitting on her sofa and we meditated for quite some time. And then afterward she said, the feeling of being perfectly situated. And that changed the world for me. It was such a perfect line coming from her mouth and from her body. And I spent years doing this. And I think possibly that listening to meditators talk and writing down what they say taught me how to write. Because I did this for years. I did my master's degree, research on it, and my PhD, and in between times when I wasn't in graduate school, 
when I was teaching meditation, the way I approached teaching was to interview the person first. I would say, tell me about your natural meditative states. And we might spend two sessions doing this, like two, two hour sessions where, and the person will, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to lie on my back and look at the sky and I would sort of fall upwards. And if there's clouds, it was a different meditation where I would feel the clouds floating or making love or dancing or taking ecstasy or getting, dropping acid and running around naked in a waterfall. We would re-enter those states and I would just listen as the person would speak from inside that beauty. And writing these simple, coherent sentences, I think maybe that was my training in writing, to taking notes. So can you say a little bit more about simple and coherent? Why you've, you've, you've landed on those as <clears throat> fundamental or important from a writing point of view? It turns out that almost everyone that you meet has already had many profound meditative experiences. They're, they don't classify them as meditation, usually. Almost nobody does. But if like you, you let a person get close, you say, well, okay, here's this huge variety of states. You'll, someone who doesn't think of themselves as a meditator, they say, oh, I get it. Once you indicate how, how broad the doorways are to meditation, they'll say something like, I'll walk into the living room and I'll see my two dogs stretched out on the sofa, breathing. They're, they're happy after a walk and then they got to eat something and they're just on the sofa breathing and they're just pure happiness. And that rhythm, that flow, the wave motion of their breathing, I'll just stand in the living room in awe and love and wonder just watching them. And parents say the same thing about their children. They'll just watch the baby sleeping or watch the little boy sleeping. And musicians and, and surfers and people in their gardens, they'll have these experiences. And if you're, if you're willing to listen to them like you would listen to a piece of music, they'll tell you these great secrets that they have discovered. And everyone has discovered them. You know, hunters out there waiting for hours, fishermen, soldiers, painters. Everyone has discovered these great secrets of life. And it's a revelation for them. Oh, that's meditation. Because <clears throat> these experiences that we all discover are so intimate, it doesn't seem like it's a technique at all. And it's not, it's actually a natural doorway. And it's hard to think of anybody that I've ever spoken with that hasn't had many such moments. I mean, drugs and drinking, people. There's, that, there's a song that's like, I'm a midnight toker. I mean, people staying up late, smoking pot and looking at the stars or listening to music or sipping, sipping something, brandy and smoking a cigar and looking at the fire. That can be the doorway to a mystical experience. And this one woman I met, after she got, oh, those mo those kind of moments, she the, had the most profound experience of her life 
was standing in an alley in like a shitty alley next to a hospital at three in the morning smoking a cigarette. And her, her girlfriend had been in long labor. It was like over 20 hours. And as everybody else was just so, was completely just fucked up and exhausted. It just, they went home, like, she's fine. She's in the hospital. The doctor would be on call. And the woman finally gave birth like at two in the morning or something like that. And it may have been more than 20 hours of labor. And she was the only person there with her friend. And so then the friend had the baby, was completely exhausted. She was fine. The doctor came and went. And so the girlfriend who'd been there for this whole thing, it was now everything was quiet. So it's like, leave her alone, let, let her sleep. She's holding the baby. So she just said, I guess, this is like, oh my gosh. Like, I've been standing here for 20 hours. Like, let me out of here. So she went downstairs and found what, that alley and, and smoked a cigarette and was looking at the stars. And she just fell into communion with all that is. Like, she had a moment of cosmic consciousness. It was like the stars, the birth of creation, her body. She just felt her body at peace with the whole world. And it was a real and lasting experience. And she went into the experience fully while, while talking with me. And she hadn't really remembered it in a long time. And so she entered a state of enlightenment and then she described it very simply, the story, and then herself standing in the alley, smoking cigarette and looking at the stars, and just looking around the world with awe and wonder. So these are real experiences of enlightenment. And what we think of as meditation <clears throat> is simply ways of staying tuned so that we have more such experiences and we integrate the ones that we've already had. And all the world's meditation techniques actually come from such spontaneous experiences that people have. You did your master's on, I suppose you could say where meditation goes wrong or ab reactions to meditation. Yeah. I'm curious, given that in this way of talking, it's possible to stumble onto these wonderfully mm -hmm. positive cosmic experiences and meditational yeah. experiences that are at odds with what a lot of people think of as meditation, um, yeah. sort of sitting formally and so on. I'm curious if you encounter people who stumbled into expansive or transformative experiences and reacted less positively to them, or if or they had, the word is ab reactions to them. Meditation always produces ab reaction, that's to use a psychological term. Relaxation always produces release of stress, always. Another way of putting it is that to the extent that you rest inside yourself and become at home, everything, every memory of feeling terrified, traumatized, scared, shocked, afraid, in other words, the opposite of feeling at home, it will come up to be healed. So meditation is inviting trouble, like bring it on because that's what bodies do. At night when we go to sleep, nature knocks us out. We're completely unconscious, so we can't resist. Like we're even immobilized. The brain immobilizes us so that in our dreams, we can be running around, but we don't get up and run around in the outer world. You can see dogs dreaming, their legs move. And even with babies, you can see them, their eyes moving. So our eyes will move, but we're very active in dreaming. And dreaming and deep sleep are essential. We'll actually die. The body will break down and die. Meditation is a deeper state of rest than deep sleep. And it happens in a couple of minutes if you allow it. 
there's a certain skill set you need to learn in order to allow that. But uh, when you allow meditation to be relaxing, then it will bring up whatever you're tense about. And so if you need help, go get therapy, go get to learn some therapeutic tools. And therapy can be body work, massage therapy. You don't need talk therapy necessarily. It can be massage therapy, dance therapy. There's incredible dancers that will give you an hour and you're just like, okay, let's dance your problems. There's music therapists and art. Okay, paint, let's paint art. There's art therapists, let's paint. Tell me in painting. There's people with sandboxes and a thousand toys. Here, let's make up a little scenario in the sandbox. Show me what's wrong, what's bothering you. There's vocal therapists. So have a broad um, spectrum for your therapists and mentors. But you need to learn to allow the healing process. Because if you meditate in a way that is natural for you and where you're accessing your great states, it's going to provoke a crisis, good crisis. It's going to accelerate your own healing. You'll heal up. Your body will want to heal up as quickly as it can from whatever your past traumas are so that you can live in a greater sense of vitality. That's what the body wants. And, and you're inviting it, you're inviting it. And so it's a natural and inevitable crisis in a way that puberty is a crisis. I'm thinking of an, an account I heard of somebody who had a, what I suppose would traditionally be called an insight into emptiness. Uh, you could say, or an insight into the, in Buddhist terms, into the no self or the emptiness, something like this. Uh, which would be seen as a good thing in, in that way of thinking, that tradition. But what happened to them was an interesting, uh, rather than seeing it as a, as a liberating or fundamentally liberating and positive experience, they experienced it as somewhat like a DPDR, I believe, de depersonalization, derealization sort of experience and found themselves in this sort of gray world where nothing was tangible and, and so on. So I'm wondering if, if people can stumble into a cosmic experience. You can, in, you know, and this is why reading books on meditation is not a good idea. It's always, I actually, I don't have room for my thousands of books. I had to give them away, but meditation books tend to be notes for people who live in spiritual institutions, organizations like a monastery or a nunnery. They're, they're all come from that basically. And they sort of think it's a good thing if your ego dissolves and you don't know who you are. Because if you live, if you're a monk living in an ashram or a nun, then you have someone to tell you what to do every day. And it doesn't matter if you're depersonalized. Because they gave you a spiritual name. You're not supposed to even remember the name you were born to. You're not, if you see your mother or brother on the road, you're not supposed to even recognize them. You're supposed to sort of have died to all. It's a death rebirth. So in that context, that's fine. But if you live in the world, then you need to be strengthening your ego and know how to resurrect your ego. So that if you encounter emptiness, you go, well, that's cool. You know, like a lost weekend like people who are really drunk or people who take mushrooms and go off into the woods and just like dissolve. They know how to come back. All right, let's just, we've got to get rested. It's sunny night, get a lot of sleep. I have to show up for work in the morning, even though I know that everything is pointless. You, um, you, so in process, you want to have a strong ego and a lot of healthy relationships and laughter that bring you back into life so that when you have these experiences of vastness or emptiness, you just can roll with it and then, and then reincarnate. And the, um, if you read spiritual books, they tend to overemphasize how great it is to experience emptiness and blah, blah, blah. So they'll steer you wrong. 
um, I did my master's on the dangers of meditation because in, from 1975 till about 79, I was seeing a lot of other meditation teachers. They were come to, coming to me for coaching. And doctors were referring meditation teachers to me who had these persistent health problems. Like they were chiropractors and psychics and MDs. And they would have these meditation teachers as, as clients or patients and that they would have a hunch, you know, you're doing the wrong meditation. But they tried that. And if you've ever talked to a meditator when they're in their groove like that, it's like talking to somebody who's under food theory. You cannot talk to people about food theory. They'll just get angry. They'll just like, no, I have these, I have this elaborate schema of whatever my food theory is. You can't. So they would send them to me and I would just listen for hours. Like, when did you start meditating? How did it go? What do you, what did you experience? What are you experiencing now? You know, do you have any doubts? And I would just listen and let them talk for hours and hours and hours. And I realized that for a lot of people who are meditation teachers, it, it hadn't been working for them for a couple of years. Meditation had worked years previously. And one of the things that happens is that they would get into a particular technique and it worked for a couple of years. Then they would be in a plateau for a couple of years and then it'd be going downhill for a couple of years. This was a, a typical pattern and they didn't know why. Hmm. And often what happened is they had outgrown the practice. The meditation technique they had been doing was very successful and their body just said, okay, that's it. I got it enough. Let's move on. But they didn't move on. They were, they were um, addicted, you could say, to one particular technique. And they needed to expand it. But the particular school they were in wouldn't allow that. Like, for example, this guy came to me. And he had been in this wonderful group and they all sat as all guys, about 15 guys. And they all sat regularly cross-legged meditating. I forget what exact brand of Vipassana it was. Anyway, it was great for a couple of years. And then he just started getting restless. Like, I just don't want to sit anymore. It's like, hmm. he just, it was just, he didn't know how to say it, but it was repressive. There's no expression. So he came to me after a long struggle, like nine months or something. He went to his teacher. He said, I don't feel good about this. And the teacher said, you know, be disciplined. Just sit through it, you know. If you run away now, it just, you know, you're just, you fall, you're fallen. This is the way. Follow me. I know the way. Stick with the program. And wouldn't hear, wouldn't hear it. That, that, that's what the teacher had been taught, which he had learned it from a monk. His, all of his friends were in this group. So when he had this crisis and he stopped going, he lost hit all of his friends and his teacher. So he did two divorces. The third divorce is that he lost his practice. He outgrew his practice. So he had, he was in the midst of three divorces. And so he came to see me and I just, I listened to him and it's like, well, what do you feel like doing? And for him, for who he was, and at the time it was 1976 or so, it was almost like, uh, a vegetarian confessing, oh, I want a hamburger. I'm a bad person. It was, I, after I listened to him for a long time, I said, what do you feel like doing? And he says, I have this image of dancing. I want to dance. And at the time, meditative dance wasn't a big thing. 
there wasn't, it wasn't outside of Esalen, it wasn't that well known. And I said, oh, well, I know all kinds of innovative dancers where they combine meditation and dance. And he went off and started exploring and it was just like, love. It's like, oh my God, he would do dance for hours. He had so much energy in his body. And he was this tall, angular guy. He just craving to get into the rhythm. And he would dance and he would lie down and dissolve in ecstasy. It's what he had been searching. Let the energy flow in dancing. And then he would just lie down and his body would hum with that happy exhaustion. And, and so that was a crisis for him. And that was his own inner life knew what his next step was. And actually it led to meeting a whole new group of people and his wife and he had wound up having kids and with the woman dancer that he met. And many meditation teachers and meditators are that guy before he left his group. They're stuck doing a narrow interpretation of the technique and not letting themselves do the four or five other techniques that actually balance. So we're still learning as a culture how to welcome these practices of meditation into our lives and really thrive. At the time in the 70s, my feeling was that do-it-yourself meditators did much better than people who are in the orthodox schools. Because people repress so much of their personality in order to fit into their meditation school. How can you tell the difference between the sort of a crisis and trouble that one puts oneself in the way of by meditating that you mentioned before and growing a technique or needing to change or to adjust something? Um, how can you tell which of those is going on? You really have to search your soul. Journey, journaling can help painting a good therapist and you don't need your therapist to be a meditator. It might even be better if they don't meditate because like lately, this is 2020, therapists are too optimistic about meditation. <laughs> they just tend to think that it's just good or their own little technique is mm -hmm. great. Whereas often therapists that don't meditate are very skilled at challenging you to face the things that you don't want to face. For any of us in meditation, we actually need to have a circle of people reflecting, like your love relationships. The people that you're in love with will reflect back to you what you're not seeing. Coaches, if you have a sport, like if you ski or kite surf or dive, you'll see it there. But you have to search and often you may have to go off on a quest. You may have to spend a whole weekend just wandering in nature alone and then writing in your journal or um, any, whatever, whatever access, whatever kind of a vision quest you want to create for yourself. Because it's very, it's very challenging to know because for example, in traditional meditation schools, pretty much always at a certain point, the guru, no matter how enlightened they are, he it starts going south. No matter what brilliant stuff he or she was saying, once they get to a certain point of numbers of followers or hundreds of millions of dollars in their secret Swiss bank account, they'll, list, they'll start going bonkers. Why is that? Just nobody's per no. In fact, nobody's perfect, and we ask too much of our gurus. There's. It's probably impossible to understand somebody from a different culture. Like, I don't think a Hindu male from India can can fully comprehend a Western woman. I just don't think there's anything in the training, say, of the gurus that we've had, where they can actually really comprehend 
with a Western female, which is most of their disciples. So there's this, there's this wacky dialogue. And to, to my perception, with energy perception, the disciples are often more enlightened than the guru. The guru is good at holding space. And they have, like a school or a, an ashram, you need somebody who sort of thinks that he's God. This it holds a groove together, but there's the problem. <laughs> it's that but they think, well, God's everywhere, but God's more in me than in, in you. That's intrinsically a problem. And on the if you want to look at say what's healthy, like say there's a rock star or a group, yeah, they know they're special, but like you can see it in a great concert, the the musicians actually know that the real juiciness is there in the audience. That they the audience is the magic, and the energy from the audience adoring the musicians and the music, and and the situation of dancing and listening, that flows into the musicians supporting them, inspiring them, and then it flows back to the audience. It flows in a circle. The musicians know, like, I'm just this guy with the guitar. They, at some point, they come, return to their skin. Yeah. And the problem of the situation of a spiritual teacher is that they really think they are that, that Mickey Mouse suit that they're wearing or their Donald Duck costume. It's like they never take off the Disneyland, the costume play. And the energy the energy flow gets messed up. Because in reality, the teacher should be bowing down to the students half the time. It, it's just, everything is an honor. It's an honor to be a teacher. It's an honor to be a student. The whole conversation is an honor. And the truths in the ancient teachings, when we these are constantly, have to constantly be discovered afresh every day. Like what's working, what's working today. The whole idea that we're looking back into the past or we're trying to replicate what somebody, a theoretical person thousands of years ago discovered, that, that leads to stagnation. It's always, these the meditation teachings are always about encountering the life force like raw and naked and saying, let's dance, let's make this day a great day. Why do you think people become meditation teachers? You're interviewing all these meditation teachers, of course, and you've been pondering these things in great depth about why they began meditating and when their meditation goes off course and all these sorts of things. Have you noticed anything about when it is that a meditation enthusiast or a meditation practitioner makes a switch to being a teacher? Have you noticed anything interesting about that switch? Why it well, happens, etc.? I think about this regularly because for me, I became a meditation teacher just for my own purposes because I needed the intensity of training. Like I, I needed, for me, where I was at, I needed to spend about two and a half years just in in very intense meditation teacher training at, at Esalen and where I learned many forms like that I mentioned, like body work and art therapy and dance therapy and sensory awareness and different styles of meditation. I needed to submit totally. So I was, for example, like I got to spend about nine months doing asana and meditation all day, every day and spent a month in pitch black just meditating and doing asana all day. At Esalen? No, was, well, that was actually in Mallorca. And I needed that for my own transformation. And then I love, I just love teaching. It's just the best thing in the world. Teaching, helping people discover their own path in meditation is so much fun that actually for years on end, I've actually paid people to study with me, basically. I would pay my own way to fly to another country and teach for free and actually pay for everything. Nobody noticed. 
and then I'd like come back to California and make enough money to do it again. I just love the process of teaching so much that it's just, it's ecstatic. Like in in my life, I've been very aware my whole life that there's atom bombs around and that any of us, they could go off. Because I I always live, turns out, in a place targeted by the Russians. It's like, it's on their map. That there's just, so their hydrogen bomb aimed right at me. It could go off in an airburst and just incinerate everything for 20 miles in all directions. Just, it would just immediately be turned to ash. And when I'm teaching meditation, I just feel like I'm doing this thing, this great thing. If the world ends, fine. I was do. I'm, I'm, I'm already in heaven. It's like, fine. However long this keeps going, it's just so much fun to help other people tune in to their own current of the life force. And then I need to stay close to these techniques because. I'm the kind of person that needs some formal meditation every day to stay, stay completely tuned. Like I know lots of people who don't do any formal technique. They're better put together than me. Like they can walk outside and take a breath and it's like, and they're enlightened for the day. They can just like look at, they can just have a mischievous glance at the leaf and then go, go create, go start a business or love somebody or write something. But I need, I need the, the tuning process. I need the full spectrum of techniques that are described in the Radiant Sutras to, to stay well tuned. And, and, um, other people too. So maybe meditation teachers or people that actually need it more. Have you ever met a meditation teacher who was going through one of these periods of meditational difficulty in their practice and concluded that it was the fact that they were teaching meditation that was the problem, or at least that stopping to teach meditation was part of the solution? Yes, yes. And it's, it's stunning. The field of meditation is not particularly honest. It's hard for people to admit, oh, this isn't working. Yeah. It's like religion where it doesn't have to work. There's this religious fantasy. Well, this is, you know, scripture. So if it doesn't work, just try harder or God, God's mad at you. Um, but it is, I, I do hear from meditation teachers uh, saying that all the time, actually. And I never... Um, repeat it because it's such, it's such a sacred uh, bit of conversation, you know, like this is not working. I, I cherish that it was more common in the seventies than it is now. It's a people spend thousands of hours um, reading various books and then sitting even damaging their knees because they sit cross-legged too much. Most people should not sit cross-legged to meditate. It's not a good pose. Sitting in a chair with your feet on the ground is a much better pose for most people. Um, but they've spent so many thousands of hours invested in that. It's hard to say, you know what, I was on, I'm on the wrong path. Um, so that's why I like with the Radiant Sutra is that there's 112 different techniques. Just take your pick. Without naming names, that's not necessary. Um, can you think of any anecdotes or, or even draw from anecdotes to uh, give a sort of list of things that you've encountered where, I don't know how to say it. Let's say, let's say a meditation teacher comes to you and says, it's, you know, just between you and me. It's not really working. Um, and I don't know what to do about that. Um, what are the sort of things that they would point to as evidence that it's not working? They say this and this and this is happening. Yeah. Well, I heard, 
I've heard this for many, many years. And the, the reason people would trust me was because I, I be, had become a famous rebel. I left the, this large organization that I was working with. And so then I was like, well, Lawrence a rebel and we'll trust him. Um, but a, a shorter answer to that is this one day when we were on a, I was on a long meditation course and this fabulous Ayurvedic physician came and here's the guy, he would just put his, take your pulse and give you a reading. So we, we all went to see him and it was, so there was these people in the whole hallway. So the woman, the woman in the next room was like 23 and, and a babe, I wasn't paying attention or I was really in my um, intense practice. And also I was 20, so she was like an older woman. So she went to see him and he goes, he just takes her pulse and goes, woman, you're at the height of your sexual capability. You know, you're 23 and start having sex now, like have lots of happy sex. Otherwise you're, you're have female problems for the rest of your life. You're trying to, you've been living like a nun for years and like suppressing your energies. Then the guy next door was reading the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and he decided that the yoga diet is supposed to be very bland because there's books. If you read random yoga books, they'll talk about the yoga diet and no spices. So he would get up early and meditate too much and take a cold shower. He, he had fixed his room so that instead of a bed, he was sleeping on a mat and I was kind of cold and he was sort of gray and had this sort of flaky skin, you could tell. And the, the doctor said, throw away all your spiritual books and never read another spiritual book till you're over 50 just read comic books, take hot baths, eat delicious food, and get a, a warm, fluffy bed that just feels like luxury. And then um, I was like living on oranges and like I would eat so, eating very lightly, I would like, eat oranges until noon and then just have a salad or something like that. And he would just like eat meat to make you strong, you know, and like your server, your, you know, you, you just, you want to jump into the ocean. You just need power. And he just went on down the line and it was the opposite of what everybody thought they're supposed to be doing. And it was uncannily accurate. Like when people would do what he said, they would be, you could tell, they're much more rounded. And it was even obvious to all of us at the time. It was just that what he said was the most taboo forbidden thing mm. for each of us. We were all in our early 20s and meditation yoga fanatics. And as a matter of fact, if anyone else had said it with his wall of denial, that, that, that wall, there'd been that foot thick transparent wall of denial where he did block the person out. But he was such a genius and he had such authority that we just, okay, that's it, busted. Hmm. So, so we all tend to build up, we all tend to build up a spiritual ideal and it's okay for about a half a day, but after that, you wind up being a sacrifice on this fake altar you've created. You wind up sort of being a sacrificial victim on this fantasy altar of what spirituality is. We all tend to do that. You know, uh, those, I'm thinking of those infomercials that they say, are you experiencing this? Are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing this? Well, take this, you know, buy this product and so on. I'm wondering if you were to do a kind of infomercial to 
the meditator uh, to maybe just gently point in some directions that a meditator might want to check that they may be denying maybe in their own practice or on their, on their own experience, what would be your top three or four infomercial style? One would be trust your instincts. Study the instincts. That's the opposite of most meditation approaches. Yeah. There's maybe you think, pick a dozen instincts. They're magic. I mean, the instincts is a name that we give to the genius moves of life. So there's homing, finding home. We all have that instinct. Nesting and resting, healing. And the opposite, searching for excitement and novelty, exploring and gathering in that which is nourishing, going for that which we need to nourish us, socializing, making rich bonds of teamwork with other people, communicating from different parts of the body, communicating from the different chakras, which are instinctive centers, celebrating and, and wayfinding, which is a combination of homing and exploring, where you make trails to either to your friend's house or to where the berries are, cooking, sharing meals. Human beings are very social. We're built, we're built to survive in teams. So, so meditation, if you approach it instinctively, is nourishing. It's like I'm being fed by the breath. It's nourishing. I'm being fed by the mantra. I'm being thrilled by the mantra in the next second. It's like I'm hunting with the mantra. I'm homing. Like I, there's an erotic feeling as if I'm mating, as if I'm forming like a love relationship with prana itself, with the life force itself. So there's a healthy meditation rotates through the instincts. And these are the same genius moves that, that that's what life does. And purifying, getting rid of the old, getting rid of the way. So absorbing nutrition and then letting go of the old stuff like that, that move for a lot of people just the idea that meditation is nourishing and be alert that, to that which nourishes you. And then sleeping, give yourself plenty of sleep. Like meditation should be a rest deeper than sleep. Not a substitute for sleep, but it gives you that thing that sleep does, which is this total healing and rejuvenation. And Without that, the whole thing doesn't really work. If meditation is just another damn chore where you're harassing yourself to fit into a spiritual ideal, it's not necessarily a good thing. Like, go surfing. Don't paint, learn to paint, write songs. Don't, don't sit there and beat yourself up. It's not healthy. So yeah, it would be trust your instincts and then two would be notice which instincts you won't allow. And that's where you're gonna get into trouble with whatever instinct that you don't allow free play during meditation. And the other thing would be meditate with your eyes open and let your eyes close of themselves. If you're approaching meditation in a restful way, a lot of the time, your eyes will close by themselves. And it's much more profound than if you force your eyes to close. And I guess the third thing would be don't force anything. You already, you are built to love the life force. It's like you're built to love food and sex and music. Build your meditation practice out of what you love so much that you're just longing to be with it. That's why there's Buddha gave 84,000 different meditation practices. It's for all the different kinds of people that they are. 
find the kind of meditation for the kind of person that you are, that you love so much that meditation feels like a vacation. That's wonderful. Viking, Guru Viking. It's, Lauren Rush. it's so good to see you. Great to see you, Lauren. Love from LA to whatever part, to your river. Love from the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's see. <laughs> Where am I? I'm here. Right. Left from here. <laughs> to here. And back at you. Lauren Roche, thank you very much. Steve James. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.